The following is a message by Pastor Caleb Bunch of Redeeming Grace Fellowship. For more information about RGF, please visit our website at www.rgf.church. Please feel free to make copies of this sermon or distribute to friends and family, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way. If you grew up in a family that was anything like mine, then you know that middle names exist for basically one purpose and one purpose only, which is to inform you as a child that you are now in trouble. When I was growing up and I heard my mother say, Caleb Scott Bunch, I knew I was busted. And typically when something like that happened, my little brother Luke, who is two years younger than I am, was probably very near me, and that's probably part of the reason we were in trouble. He was typically my partner in crime. But as soon as he heard my mother call out my middle name, he wanted to provide as much distance between us as possible so he would make tracks pretty quickly in the opposite direction. Because he knew that if I was in trouble and if he was with me, then he would probably also be disciplined. I think this is why I always read Proverbs chapter 18, verse 24 with a little bit of a side glance when I read the words, there is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. And my thinking was, That's not a very high bar that you're setting there for me. Um, This is going to be our final sermon in the book of 2 Timothy. I have loved going through this book. I have so enjoyed seeing the passion that Paul had to share with his son in the faith, Timothy, and to help him and encourage him. So one final time, let's recap what we've covered so far. Paul was writing to his spiritual son in the faith, Timothy. He was pleading with him to fan the flame of zeal for Christ and for the gospel. And he then encouraged Timothy to guard against false teachers and their false gospel. And the way that Timothy is to protect the true flock at Ephesus was by preaching the gospel faithfully in accordance with the scriptures. Now, last week, we reached the emotional center of the book as Paul informed Timothy that he was going to die very soon. His life is going to be taken by execution, and he knows it. Paul was thankful that he had finished the race and that he had fought the good fight by keeping the faith, which now brings us to our text for this morning. Paul is going to inform Timothy about faithful friends and about unfaithful frauds. He is going to display what it looks like to be hard-pressed on every side, but not crushed. He is going to show us what it looks like to be perplexed, but not in despair. He is going to give us a visual depiction of what it means to be persecuted, but not abandoned, and struck down, but not destroyed. So as we read the final words of Paul that we have at least recorded we are going to see that there is indeed a friend who sticks closer than a brother. Please follow along in your own copy of the scriptures, 2 Timothy chapter 4, beginning at verse 9. Do your best to come to me soon. For Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Crescens has gone to Galatia, Titus to Dalmatia. Luke alone is with me. Get Mark and bring him with you. For he is very useful to me for ministry. Tychicus I have sent to Ephesus. And when you come, bring the cloak that I left with Carpus at Troas, also the books, and above all, the parchments. Alexander the coppersmith did me great harm. The Lord will repay him according to his deeds. Beware of him. 
Beware of him yourself, for he strongly opposed our message. At my first defense, no one came to stand by me, but all deserted me. May it not be charged against them. But the Lord stood by me and strengthened me, so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it. So I was rescued from the lion's mouth. The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Greet Prissa and Aquila and the household of Onesiphorus. Erastus remained at Corinth, and I left Trophimus, who was ill, at Miletus. Do your best to come before winter. Eubulus sends greetings to you, as do Pudens and Linus and Claudia and all the brothers. The Lord be with your spirit. Grace be with you. Let's pray. Father, I ask that today as we are coming to the close of this book and to the close of this calendar year, that you would give us grace to hear afresh and anew from Christ. Help us to hear the word of the Lord this morning, not only with human ears, but with ears that are provided to us by your Holy Spirit. Give us a desire and a hunger for Christ. Give us a passion for the newness that we have in him. Give us a delight in what we see in these words. And Lord, I pray for anyone here who does not know Christ, that you would convict and that you would change and that you would reveal your son to them through the gospel. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Our, our outline today is very basic, very simple. I have just one point. And after this one point, we're going to look at nine different applications. But the point of the message comes from verse 17. It's the simple phrase, but the Lord stood by me. And I'm going to repeat that phrase many times this morning, but please don't get tired of it. I'm going to say it over and over and over, but please don't tune it out because this little phrase is filled with hope. It is filled with joy and comfort for the believer. So soak it in, memorize it, delight in the truth of it. And in order to see this, what I would like to do is first consider Paul's situation here. Consider how the tables have turned. The first time that we were ever introduced to Paul in the Bible is all the way back in Acts chapter 7, and he is watching approvingly the murder of a godly man named Stephen. He, cared, he watched over and cared for the coats of the people who were throwing stones. Those people went and they picked up rocks and they were thinking, I don't want to get blood and mud all over my coat. So they laid it at the feet of Paul and he guarded them for them. He watched Stephen full of the Holy Spirit, as he gazed into the heavens and he saw the glory of God. And as Stephen saw Jesus himself standing at the right hand of God, he heard Stephen say, Behold, I see the heavens opened up and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. And Paul stood there with the mob against Stephen. And it actually says in Acts chapter 7 that when Stephen said that, they began to put their fingers in their ears. That was probably Paul. But I bet you he still heard when it says that Stephen cried out with a loud voice, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. I bet he still heard the words that Stephen finally cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. I wonder how often that memory played in Paul's mind. After that time, he lived about another 30 years. How regularly did he think about those things happening? 
How often did he remember what it looked like when Stephen fell that last time onto the ground, bleeding out? How often did he wake up having a nightmare that he had taken part in the execution of an innocent man? Paul is now the one who is surrounded by bloodthirsty men. It is Paul who is about to be executed by an unjust judgment. It is Paul who is going to die at the hands of people just like he used to be. Tables have turned, but Paul would not go back to his old life for anything that the world could offer. Why not? Because just like Stephen before him, the Lord stood by him. The Lord was with Stephen, and the Lord was with Paul. So why was Paul alone in the first place? He speaks about multiple reasons that he's been left alone in this passage. First, he had been left alone by those people who have faithfully gone on to serve the Lord in other parts of the Roman Empire. For example, Crescens was serving the Lord in Galatia, and Titus was ministering in Dalmatia. Paul had sent Tychicus to Ephesus, and he had left Trophimus in Miletus, and Erastus had chosen to remain and serve in Corinth. We have every reason to believe that all of these men were fulfilling their calling to Christ in these respective locations. They were there because Jesus had set them there. God was using them where they were supposed to be the lighthouse of the gospel. But on a very deeply personal level, Paul felt their absence. He could tell that they were not there with him. And this group, which scholars like to call the Pauline Circle, is now spread out across the map, and Paul has no ability ability to experience any comfort from them. It's important to remember that even the people that you love the most, and even the people that love you the most, and even the people that love Christ the most, along with you, will not always be able to come and comfort you. They may have been providentially placed in other places for other reasons, and they cannot come and be with you. But the Lord stood by him. Even though they were at a distance, the Lord stood by him. But not all of those who deserted Paul were for good reasons. Demas was in love with this present world, so he ran. He deserted Paul, and he went to Thessalonica. And this sort of betrayal can happen to you, and it can happen to me. And this sort of betrayal happens all the time. People are self-serving, and they will regularly fail you. Unsaved people will fold under pressure and the threat of persecution. Demas ran away, but the Lord stood by him. And Alexander the coppersmith, he had apostatized, and he was intentionally seeking to cause harm to Paul and to the gospel. Paul emphasized this by warning Timothy and saying that, quote, he has strongly opposed our message. This is not just a dislike of Paul the man. This is a dislike of everything that Paul stands for. The man Alexander was desirous to tear down the kingdom of God by destroying its foundation of Christ and the gospel. This man had become an enemy of Paul because of the message. And opposition like this arises in our lives too. There are those who will try to destroy you because you love Christ. And because you hold firmly to the gospel. People are not simply happy to leave you behind. I don't know if you've seen this in our culture. But there is a war against those who love Jesus. Instead people make it their aim to destroy Christ and his people. And it's evident from this text that Paul had genuinely felt that kind of hostility from Alexander. He felt it. It was very real to him. But the Lord stood by him. Then he says, Luke alone is with me. This little phrase, the way that he words it, is very interesting. Luke alone is with me. 
Just Luke. Now, it seems like Luke is not much help to him in this case. Perhaps Luke lacked the physical fortitude to remain in the dark, dirty cell of the Mamertine prison. Perhaps Luke was very old and unable to scale the rope up and down to the prison floor. Perhaps he was poor as an outsider and an associate of Paul, having no true source of income or resources himself. Ultimately, we don't know why, but it seems that Paul is saying that Luke is not able to be of much service to him. However, it does seem that Paul is also highlighting the loyalty of his friend. He is highlighting the commitment of Luke. Can you imagine these two men sitting together? Can you imagine what those conversations must have been like between Paul and Luke? Do you know what is in that room? 15 of the 29 books of the New Testament are sit or 27 books of the New Testament are sitting right there in their minds as they're talking. Do you know that about 70,000 words that were inspired by the Holy Spirit were written by one of those two people? That is an incredible thing that these two men were sitting there together in this prison. I personally think that Luke might have also been the author of Hebrews, which makes that number go way up higher. But ultimately, I want you to see something here is that even when you do have others with you, and even when they are near you and doing their best for you and seeking to serve you, it is not always that comforting to you. But the Lord stood by him. And as for the anonymous others that are in this text, they all deserted him. Paul writes this devastatingly chilling phrase in verse 16. He says, at my first offense, no one came to stand by me. And then he could have left it at that. But he included, but all deserted me. The more I learn about Paul and I come to see him as the real human being that he was and not some mystical ancient figure, but the real Paul, I cringe when I come to this verse. I think of how heartbreaking it must have been when the judge asked, is there anyone willing to testify on this man's behalf? And Paul looked around to see who would represent him. And as he looked, he saw no one. No one on his side. Just like Jesus, when he was accused falsely, there was nobody to stand next to him. But the Lord stood by him. He says in verse 17, but the Lord stood by me and strengthened me. How was Paul able to stand firm in the midst of this kind of danger? How could he do that? He was experiencing the full weight of the Roman Empire's hatred for Christianity on his shoulders. He was being threatened with execution. He knew that his name was going to be publicly smeared. And he knew that the Roman government was going to make a spectacle out of his death. How did he stand? But the Lord stood by him and strengthened him. That is how. The word strength here is the same Greek word that Paul used when he wrote the words and the introduction of the armor of God in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10. It says, finally, be strong. Does he just tell them to be strong? No. Be strong in the Lord. And in the strength of your might? No. In the strength of his might. And it is the same word that he used in the famous verse, Philippians 4.13, when he said, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. My strength is not something that I can conjure up in and of myself. It is external to me and it comes to me from Christ. Paul stood firm because Jesus was there. 
standing right next to him. Jesus upheld him, and if Christ would have taken away his support for even a moment, Paul would have crumbled under the weight of the pressure, and you would too. But if you're in Christ, Christ stands by his people. Part of God's amazing grace is that we are never apart from our God, just as Jim mentioned earlier, that he is Emmanuel, God with us. He is always with us, even to the end of the age. There is no battle that you fight on your own. There is no enemy that can defeat your king. Paul says, so I was rescued from the lion's mouth. Now, this is probably a figurative statement. It's probably not literal. We don't have any historical reason to believe that Christians were already being fed to the lions this early on. Also, as a Roman citizen, beheading was the only legal form of execution that could be given to him. However, it is possible that somebody threatened him with execution by lion. Regardless, Paul was spared from his first trial. Now he's awaiting a final hearing, and he knows that at the conclusion of that hearing, it will result in his death. And notice, not only does Paul say that the Lord rescued him in the past tense, Paul knows that his execution is at hand, so he adds the future tense, the Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. It's coming. The deliverance, the rescue, it is at hand. Matthew verse, chapter 10, verse 28 says, Do not fear those who kill the body and cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Paul knew that death was just a doorway. He knew that as soon as he closed his eyes, that he would open them in his heavenly home. The Lord would continue to stand by him until the time came when Christ would personally escort Paul into eternal glory. And then Paul would stand by the Lord always and forever. There's an old hymn that encapsulates much of what I've just been saying. It was originally written by a German woman. We know practically nothing about her. Uh, In the scope of world history, she is seemingly insignificant, except for the fact that she wrote these words. And then it was translated into English by faithful Christians who were being persecuted in Scotland by the queen that we know as Bloody Mary. The people of Scotland and the faithful Christian church were fearful because the Englishmen were being arrested. Those faithful English Christians were being tortured and being killed by this woman. And so they took this hymn and they used it as an encouraging call to their souls to stand even if it meant that they were going to die. And this song is called Be Still My Soul. So I want you to listen to those words in light and through the lens of Second Timothy chapter 4. It says, be still, my soul. The Lord is on thy side. Bear patiently the cross of grief or pain. Leave to thy God to order and provide. In every change, he faithful will remain. Be still, my soul. Thy best, thy heavenly friend, through thorny ways leads to a joyful end. Be still, my soul, when dearest friend depart, and all is darkened in the veil of tears. Then shalt thou better know his love, his heart, who comes to soothe thy sorrow and fears. Be still, my soul, the waves and winds shall blow. His voice, who ruled them while he dwelt below. 
Be still, my soul, the hour is hastening on when we shall be forever with the Lord. When disappointment, grief, or and fear are gone, sorrow for God, love's purest joys restored. Be still, my soul, when change and tears are past. All safe and blessed, we shall meet at last. The Lord stands by those who belong to him. You're not alone. The grace of God is with you. Even when the world around you seems to be against you completely on every side. That's why Paul wrote in, in Romans chapter 8 verse 31. If God is for us, who can be against us? And the implied answer, of course, is no one. So stand firm. Be strengthened, knowing that Christ has gone before you. He has gone to the cross to save you. Knowing that Jesus rose, and therefore you too will rise. Knowing that Jesus lives, so you also will live. And that he is daily the one who is upholding you. As we transition now to a time of considering application from this text, please don't shift gears away from this grace that we've been talking about. Because if, if you attempt to apply what I'm about to tell you, apart from the grace of the fact that Christ is with you, then it will devolve into nothing more than legalism. Instead, I want you to be filled with strength that comes from knowing Christ's love for you, and the natural reflex of your soul is to respond by loving Him. We're standing now at the precipice of a new year. The rushing river of time is about to wash us out of 2018 and right into 2019. And when the calendar shifts over to January, people all around the nation and probably the whole world are going to begin making resolutions. Right? That's a thing people do. Most of these resolutions make it less than 100 hours before people forget them. But I'm going to give you nine resolutions that I hope this year that you could apply to your life from this text, so that you will be able to stand in the grace of our Lord. Resolution number one, trust in Christ. If you're saved, if you are a Christian, then this text is calling you to trust Christ, even when he leads you through paths of earthly danger. Because you're safe with him. So trust in the Lord with all of your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all of your ways, acknowledge him and he will make your path straight. But there may be some people here who don't know Christ as their savior. And if that's the case for you, thank you for coming. I am so glad that you're here. But if you've not been born again, please understand that Christ is not standing with you as your ally. He actually is standing against you as your enemy. The scripture teaches that you and I have sinned and we have made ourselves to be enemies. We have left the kingdom of God and rebelled and run from him. There is nothing for you in this sermon at all. There is nothing for you to take away unless you first hear this. That Jesus has made a way to be a friend of God. That God has sent his son Jesus to seek and save the lost. That he came to bring rebels back to himself. Not as prisoners, but as adopted children and heirs to the promise of Christ. And if you will trust in Christ for your salvation, then you will have Jesus. You will have a friend that is closer than a brother. He is the jewel of heaven. He is the joy of the universe. And so I plead with you, if you don't know Christ, repent of your sin and turn in faith to Jesus. He is the only one that can take away your sin and give you newness of life. And today is the day of salvation. So come all who are weary and heavy laden 
He will give you rest. Resolution number two, develop rich, godly friendships. Notice the urgency that Paul has to get Timothy to travel back to him. This is not just a minor request. He says multiple times, come to me quickly. And then later he says, try to come to me before winter. This is a big deal. Uh, this is a long travel. This is a big journey. That's that's not just a little thing to ask. I don't even like to come back to the church when I forget something here, and I just live in Levittown. But he's asking him to travel 1,240 miles from Ephesus to Rome, probably by foot. That's like walking from here to Oklahoma City. And then you, of course, have to walk back. And Timothy would have probably been traveling either by himself or with a small party, which was quite dangerous. And Paul knew that he was going to be with Timothy forever in eternity with Christ. Yet there is great joy that you have when you are spending time with your loved ones here on earth. He has one last chance before he dies to spend time with his spiritual son. So please consider the unlikely nature of this friendship. I want you to think for a moment about how absurd this looks to the world. Paul was a Jew, a Hebrew of Hebrews. Timothy was a gentile half jewish his father was greek paul's first language was aramaic that's probably what he most naturally spoke and timothy's first language was probably greek they were not from the same country they were not from the same generation paul was probably 20 to 30 years older but they had come to be tightly knit together because of the gospel they served the same king and they loved one another in christ and church the church that i love I want to tell you, we are not good at prioritizing fellowship with one another. We just aren't. We have not done a great job of putting one another's time ahead of our own. We have busy lives and we have busy schedules. And I know traffic makes it really, really hard to get around. But I encourage you, don't let inconveniences deter you from developing lifelong, rich, godly friendships with a spiritual dimension to them. Gather together regularly and ensure that your gatherings include conversations about Christ and about his word. We have many programs and we have Bible studies and community groups and and ladies brunches and men's breakfasts. Go to those things. But beyond those things, don't use those as a crutch. Seek opportunities to live out your life with the brothers and sisters in his body, brothers and sisters in Christ. Don't let those things on the calendar become a substitute for true Christ-exalting friendship that produces godly fellowship. There was a quote that I wanted to find. I tried really hard to, to find it. It's by Andrew Fuller. I read it when I was in seminary, and it's in an obscure ancient document. Can't find it anywhere. But basically, he said this. I'm going to maybe butcher it a little. He said, anytime you see a great movement of Christ, you will, at the root of it, see that there is a group of godly friends. And God works through groups of people who love each other and serve one another and pray together and encourage one another. So second resolution for you this year, develop rich, godly friendships. Resolution number three, fall out of love with the world. Verse 10 says, For Demas, in love with this present world, has departed me, deserted me, and gone to Thessalonica. What was his problem? What was Demas's issue? Paul does not mention the fear of man. He doesn't highlight Demas' desire to safeguard his reputation. Rather, he focuses in on his love for this present world that caused him to desert Paul. 
I agree with the scholars who say that this is evidence that Demas was not a true believer in Christ. Consider 1 John chapter 2, verse 15. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. So how do you stop loving the world? How do you do that? It's by falling more in love with Christ. To know him is to love him. So study him. Spend time with him. Give your attention to him. Sing to him. See his love for you. And see the natural reflex of your soul to love him more. Turn your eyes upon Jesus and look full in his wonderful face. And then the things of this world will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Resolution four. Read. Paul knows that his execution is at hand, yet he makes a very interesting request of Timothy in verse 13 when he says, When you come, bring the cloak I left with Carpus at Troas, also the books, and above all, the parchments. We don't have certainty about the specific details of any of these three items on Paul's list. The word cloak may mean an actual article of clothing. He's in a prison. It's probably cold. That may be what he's referring to. However, that word is also the word that is used often in that time for a chest or a box, which would include personal items. It's possible that Paul had left some of his possessions and maybe even some of his writings in it there with Carpus. But more than that, Paul was interested in the books and above all, the parchments. It is almost a certainty that these books and parchments were Paul's writings. And they, they may be the actual original autographs of Scripture. Can you imagine the original writings and letters that Paul wrote to the different people and churches around the region? This might be the New Testament that he is referring to come back to him. But whatever these writings are, we can see that even at the end of his life, even as he knows he's about to die... It was his eager anticipation to read. And I don't suppose that this was mere leisurely reading or purposeless reading. Paul was going to see Christ face to face, yet it was his desire to know and study him more before his death. Church, we have an incredible gift. We live in a time where we are educated. You know how to read. We live in an age of... Information overload. Everywhere you look, there's stuff to read. But there are good Christian books to be found, and they are easily accessible, and they are affordable. And there's a ton of fluff out there, too, so you might want some good direction. But I want to encourage you to read. First and most importantly, read the Scripture every day. On the table over here to my right, we have a a list of, um, this is a reading schedule that you can use. It's got a reading opportunity for every day of the year of 2019. And if you read each one of these, you will finish reading the Bible in one year. There are lots of different ways to do this. If this is not a great way for you to do it, talk to me, talk to one of the pastors. We'll help you find a good way to commit yourself to the regular intake of Scripture. But be faithful to daily read the Word. Do not fall out of the practice of intaking the scripture because you know what it's like you miss a day and then it turns into four days and then before you know it it's just sunday to sunday to sunday that's where you're getting all of your intake of the word and it's great to come to church thank you for being here 
But if this is all you're getting, you are missing out on the treasure trove of grace that is to be found in the word. So dig into the word every day. Also, I want to encourage you to do other good reading. Read helpful books that will clarify for you and systematize what you are reading in the scripture. On the table to my right, you're also going to find a list of 19 books to edify our church this coming year. These are suggestions from myself and from Mike and Steve and uh, also from Jacob. These are 19 books that we want to encourage you. These are excellent opportunities to intake good truth about Christ. And these come from a variety of different directions, looking at scripture, a lot of different things to study. But I want to encourage you to pick up maybe one or two of those books and read them this year. Love the Lord your God with all your mind. And part of that means setting your focus in the written word. God has chosen to communicate to us by the written word, so let's not ignore it. And let us grow and learn from other faithful Christians who have gone on before us and who have learned wisdom to pass to us. So, resolution four, read. Resolution number five, leave vengeance to God. Verse 14 says, Alexander the coppersmith did me great harm. And the, the response of the human heart is normally to say, now I want to do him great harm. But instead, Paul's response is, the Lord will repay him according to his deeds. Paul is not a mafia boss. He does not put a hit out on Alexander. In fact, he doesn't seek to get payback of any kind. He simply recognizes that God is able to deal with Alexander appropriately. I, just pause for a second and think about this. There are two possibilities at hand. Either Alexander would eventually come to Christ and be saved, and therefore all of those offenses against Paul would be placed on Christ and have been paid for at the cross. That's option number one. Jesus took care of it at the cross. Option number two, God is going to judge him at the final day, and Jesus is going to stand over him in judgment forever. And in that case, Jesus takes care of it. God is better at dealing with these things than we are. And Paul is probably reminded of what he was inspired to say by the Holy Spirit back in Romans chapter 12, verse 18. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, thus says the Lord. Brothers and sisters, commit to recognize that your enemies are not your problem. God will handle them. Don't repay evil with evil. Instead, overcome evil with good. Resolution number six, forgive quickly. At my first defense, no one came to stand by me, he says. But all deserted me. That's verse 16. But that's not how it ends. He says, may it not be charged against them. Paul seems to indicate that these nameless cowards were not his enemies. These men and women were not actively seeking to destroy the gospel. Rather, they ran or they hid or they didn't come because they were fearful to stand by Paul. Earlier, I told you about how I would sometimes get in trouble and my brother would desert me. Well, here's another side of the story. When I was about seven and my younger brother Luke was about five years old, we went out to the end of my parents' driveway and we lived right outside of town in the country. And our driveway was a long driveway, not made of pavement, but made out of these large chunks of river, river rock. And I told my brother, you know what? I have a fun game we could play. Why don't you try to throw rocks at these cars that are driving by and see if you can hit one? And uh, he tried car after car, but he always missed until finally 
Boom! He hit one right on the passenger side door, and the driver immediately slammed on the brakes, and because of what kind of car this was, he immediately flipped on his lights and siren and popped out of the car and came over to us and grabbed us by the hand and walked us up to the front door and rang the doorbell and began to yell at my mom. (sighs) My response was, I didn't throw any rocks. That was my brother. Luke did it. I didn't touch anyone. And if I remember correctly, he got the brunt of the discipline, but I also got in trouble because I think they had a suspicion that I was the ringleader in this one. But the next day, it was like nothing had ever happened. The next day, it was like my brother had completely forgotten that this had taken place. The next day, it was like I had never thrown him under the bus. It was like he didn't hold it against me at all. Paul is showing us by his example what quick and full forgiveness looks like. He didn't hold their absence against them. He still loved them. And church, I can call on you now to do the same thing under the inspiration of the Spirit, by the Word of God, to be quick to forgive. And if someone does something that genuinely hurts you, trust, again, that it is the Lord who who will take care of that, especially if they are your brother or sister in Christ. Be rapid in your forgiveness. Also, I want to just briefly set your attention on someone we've talked about a great deal, so I won't put a lot of focus on it. What about Mark? He says, he says to Timothy, get Mark and bring him with me. Do you remember this guy is one of the people who had deserted him earlier? In fact, he's the one that broke up the great duo of Paul and Barnabas because Paul said, I'm not taking this guy with me again. And Barnabas says, but he's my nephew. Would love for him to kind of go on this trip with me. I would love for him to have another chance. And Paul says, no way, if you're bringing him, We're we're separating. I'll just take Silas. And so they separated from one another because of Mark. But now he says, bring Mark with you because he's helpful for me. Forgive rapidly and forgive fully. Resolution number seven, use time wisely. In verse 17, I want to focus on two words. It says, but the Lord stood by me and strengthened me so that... Through me, the message might be fully proclaimed. The words that I want you to focus on are those two little words, so that. Paul recognized that his time here on this earth that he had been given between his first and second trial was not just so that he could continue breathing. God could take you and your life away at any moment. He could take you to heaven right now. As we saw last week, that would be far better for you to be with Christ. However, God has a purpose for every breath you will ever take. He has a design and a goal for your life. Your life can shine like a lighthouse of the gospel, and it can do so in ways that are different than I can. You have a different reach than I do. You have different influence than I do. You have a different voice than I do. You have different people in your life than I do. And that is true for every one of us. God has a purpose for you as a Christian to be alive right now. And Paul recognized, I am alive so that I can do something specific. Recognize that God has a calling for you. And take inventory of your life and see if you're throwing the gift of your life away or selling it off too cheaply. Instead, invest it. Invest your life in the mission of Christ at every opportunity. Which, closely related, we come now to resolution number eight. Proclaim the gospel. 
Again, in verse 17, he says, But the Lord stood by me and strengthened me, so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it. Paul's mission was to share the gospel with the Gentiles. In that way, we have the same calling as Paul does. One of the hallmark distinctives of a disciple is that they are called to make more disciples. We've been studying the last words of Paul before his death, but what about the last words of Christ before his ascension? Matthew chapter 28, 19 and 20. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. That is done on a macro level through the growth of the church, church planting. It is done on a micro level in our individual lives as we seek to share the gospel with others. So be faithful to do it. To the best of your ability, be strategic, make plans, make goals to share the gospel with people. Otherwise, if you're like me, you might not do it. Be consistent and wise and gracious and winsome and sober-minded as you carry the good news to the lost faithfully. Resolution number nine, our final one for the day, although there's many more that could be added. Give glory to God with every breath. Paul's final conclusion about his life and impending death boils down to his words in verse 18. He says, To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. I'm not going to say much about this verse today, partially because all of the things that I have said before this point are all about God getting glory from your life. And partly I'm not going to say much about it because every sermon that I ever preach should be centered on the premise that God would get the glory from your life. But allow me to simply say this. Paul was executed not long after writing these words and God was glorified in his death. But God was also glorified when Paul was sitting in the prison cell. He was glorified when he was reading and studying. He was glorified when Paul was walking or riding a donkey from city to city to city in the Roman Empire. He was glorified from all of the menial, simple things that Paul did from day to day when his heart was set on Christ. God doesn't just receive glory from big things like becoming a martyr. Rather, I encourage you to delight in him, enjoy him, set your heart upon him and worship him with all that you say and do for in everything that you do, you can give God the glory. So make it your aim 2019, 2020, every day for the rest of your life. Make it your aim and your goal and your desire to give him all the glory and honor and praise. Allow me to close now with a simple prayer. I'm not going to pray extensively for you this morning, although if you stay for the stay and pray, we'll have more time together in prayer. I simply want to close by praying over you this one simple verse from verse 22. Father God, I pray that the Lord would be with the people here. May the Lord be with your spirit. Grace be with you. Amen. Amen. This time, Jake's going to come forward and share the uh, opportunities for service.